looking at John chapter 2, verses 23, all the way to chapter 3, verse 15 today. And if you're using a pew Bible, that's on page, you can find that on page 887. Once you've found your place, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? John chapter 2, verse 23. Hear the word of the Lord. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, We speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, these are not merely the words of man. These are your words. Chosen men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And we should count ourselves richly blessed to hold them in our hands and Hear them read over us this morning in a language we can understand. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Too often, though, we are much like Nicodemus. We're a people who don't understand your words and who don't believe what your words reveal about your own son and our desperate need for him. As Jesus taught Nicodemus, please be our teacher now and open our minds to understand your word and open our hearts to receive what is written for our eternal good. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I've reminded you before, multiple times, and it's worth reminding you again of the purpose of John's gospel. All of John's cards are on the table, so to speak. In John chapter 20, verse 31, he says, This gospel is written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Everything John writes aims toward you believing and having life in Jesus' name. That aim is so important to John because without believing and without having life in Jesus' name, you will perish under the eternal wrath of God. That's what he says in chapter 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world, and unless you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, you will perish in your sins under God's wrath forever. And John is on mission to see that multitudes of peoples reading his gospel, like all of us, believe that Jesus is the Christ, escape never-ending wrath, and enjoy true life with God forever. Knowing John's purpose makes our passage this morning all the more significant for your life, and all the more sobering if you claim to believe in Jesus' name. Verses 23 to 24 say, Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. Those are very sobering words when eternal wrath and eternal life are in the balance. How do we come to terms with the fact that not everyone who, who is believing in Jesus' name here actually gained a saving relationship with him? I thought that was the point of chapter 1, verses 11 to 12. He came to his own, his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And yet here we find John saying that Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to these others who apparently believed in his name when they saw the miracles he was doing. What are we to learn from this fairly jarring statement? What we learn is that Jesus isn't obligated to anyone on this earth. And therein lies the good news. Jesus is not obligated to anyone on this earth. And therein lies the good news. The good news is that he is obligated 
to his father. He is obligated to his father in heaven who has loved and chosen to save sinners. And when he saves them, he saves them on conditions which magnify his son. Conditions that are in line with his son's greatness and beauty. Conditions that recognize who his son truly is. The condition we meet here is that of genuine saving faith. John wants to make perfectly clear that not all that looks like faith in Jesus' name is truly saving faith. There's a faith that Jesus accepts by making you a child of God, chapter 1, verse 12. And there's a faith that Jesus rejects by not entrusting himself to you, chapter 2, verse 23. The first we can call saving faith, since Jesus as Savior entrusts himself to you and By virtue of that union with Jesus, you are saved from the wrath wrath to come. All of Jesus' true disciples have saving faith. The second we might call spurious faith. A faith that actually has no saving effect since Jesus doesn't entrust himself to you. So a mere claim to believe in Jesus' name doesn't mean he's entrusted himself to you. You must have genuine saving faith in Jesus' name for Jesus to entrust himself to you. Jesus doesn't entrust himself to those with spurious faith because he sees right through the facade of spurious faith to what is really inside the heart. Really inside the heart of that person. And what is really inside the person with spurious faith is not a heart truly trusting Jesus for eternal life. Truly coming to Jesus for who he really is in all of his fullness. People with spurious faith may look like Jesus' disciples on the outside. They follow him as they see him performing the miracles. But deep within them is really a heart that's suspicious of Jesus. They need him to prove himself with more signs and wonders. Just like the official, uh, in Jesus' encounter with the official in chapter, the end of chapter 4, Jesus says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Or, within them is a heart that looks at the signs Jesus is performing, but refuses to look through the signs to see his glory as the only Son of God. The people in verse 23, this is like the people in verse 23 who see the signs, but apparently in a way that displeases Jesus. Or within them is a heart that wants Jesus to fill their bellies with food, but wants nothing to do with Jesus when he says the true food he provides will cost you your life. We see that in chapter 6 with the 5,000. Verse 66, they're, I mean, verse 26, they're all following him. They have their bellies full. In verse 66, they all walk away, except the 12. 
or within them is a heart that wants to follow the miracle worker as long as he makes me look good in public and doesn't expose my pride with his teaching. We see this in Jesus' brothers, his own brothers in chapter 7, verses 3 to 5. They want him to go up to Jerusalem, perform the miracles, let everybody see you. We'll ride your coattails on into town. Or, and and the text there in chapter 7, verse 5, says the disciples really didn't believe. His brothers didn't really believe in Jesus. Or within those with spurious faith is a heart that doesn't come to Jesus like a child of Abraham comes, but stands over Jesus with devilish skepticism and scrutiny of what he is like and who he is. We see that in the Jews Chapter, chapter 8, verses 30 and 34, it says that they believed in him. And a few verses later, Jesus is calling them sons of the devil, children of the devil. They didn't really, their faith was spurious. Or as we'll see in Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus, those with spurious faith want to speak with Jesus about heavenly matters. But not if those heavenly matters mean they must change from the inside out. I think we're all vulnerable to that. Spurious faith isn't saving because by its very nature it refuses to come to Jesus for who he really is and what he really demands. It wants enough of Jesus to make you look spiritual and sound spiritual and even act in ways that are spiritual without actually treasuring him for all he really is and all he really provides for salvation. True belief in Jesus' name is following him, not merely because you think he's a great miracle worker, but because in him is life, and the life is the light of men. Jews think Jesus is a great miracle worker. Muslims think Jesus is a great miracle worker. Muslims believe Jesus is going to return and defeat some false messiah in the end. But neither the Jew nor the Muslim comes to Jesus as all-sufficient Savior, as all-providing treasure. They do not come to Jesus for eternal life and thus do not really come to Jesus at all. And the same is true for all of us. If we come to Jesus on our own conditions, defining how he must prove himself, demanding what he must provide us, or we're out, limiting how we will follow him, then he will not entrust himself to us for salvation. Then what kind of faith does he receive? We've established that, he, that we must have saving faith, He receives that. But what exactly does the nature of saving faith look like? What does the saving faith of all Jesus' true disciples include? It's a question worth asking of this passage because if Jesus promises not to entrust himself to those with spurious faith, then it is equally true that Jesus promises, gloriously promises, to entrust himself to those with genuine saving faith. That's exactly where this chapter is going. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish 
but have, everla- but have everlasting life. Whoever believes in him in a true and saving sense should not perish but have ever- everlasting life. That's God's promise to all of you who believe, who come to Jesus with saving faith. So what, what is coming to Jesus with such saving faith look like? Number one, saving faith comes to Jesus for a new heart. Saving faith comes to Jesus for a new heart. It doesn't just come to Jesus to turn over a new leaf. It doesn't just come to Jesus to get better in life. It comes to Jesus to gain a completely new nature, a completely new heart for God. We see this in Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus. Nicodemus is an example of the spurious faith we just talked about. He comes to Jesus under the cover of nightfall and says to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So like the people in verse 23 who believed in Jesus when they saw the signs... Nicodemus proves to be one among the many in that group. He has seen the signs Jesus performs, and from them he's even able to make out the fact that Jesus is a teacher of sorts. But in verses 11 to 12, Jesus sees right through the pretense of Nicodemus and includes Nicodemus among those who don't receive Jesus' testimony and who don't really believe in the need for a new heart. And, what be, and that becomes the whole point driving Jesus' response to this ruler of the Jews. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What is Jesus' point? It is this, Nicodemus, you and your compadres may see signs well enough and even make me out to be a good teacher, but you're still blind to the kingdom of God. In fact, you'll never see the saving reign of God at all unless you're born again. You see, it's true that in one sense, God reigns over everything. Psalm 103 says that the Lord has established his thrones in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. But there's another sense in which the scriptures anticipate God's heavenly rule, finding a very concrete expression on earth through the saving actions of his divine son. A divine son that would come through the line of David and rule forever. And who's now speaking to Nicodemus face to face. But Nicodemus doesn't see in Jesus the all-glorious king of heaven and earth. What he sees is a miracle worker and a teacher. Thus it makes sense why Nicodemus reacts the way he does. How can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? His question reveals that he has no clue who Jesus is. Or what he's talking about. And as is normal with others who encounter Jesus without understanding who Jesus really is, Nicodemus interprets Jesus' words literally. And when he does, he totally overlooks his true need for a new heart. He totally overlooks his true need for inner transformation if he's to experience God's salvation. If he's to experience the fullness of God's reign through his Messiah. So Jesus presses in further, but now uses language from the Old Testament to explain what, he means, what it means to be born again. 
He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, the ESV has water of water and the spirit, but it should be translated of water and spirit. Jesus is speaking about one birth, not two. Being born of water and spirit in verse 5 is the equivalent of being born again in verse 3. So unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh, he says, is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Jesus is pointing out Nicodemus's true spiritual need and all of our spiritual need. You must be born again. Nicodemus should know that no human act, no Jewish heritage, no particular human race, no particular husbandry, no bloodline connection, no status as a ruler of the Jews guaranteed his participation in the kingdom of God. He must be born again. He must be changed from the inside out. This is his true need and why he should be coming to Jesus in the first place. It's why we all should be coming to Jesus. Our biggest need is for a new heart that loves God. And the only way that new heart comes is through the cleansing and renewing work of God's Spirit. Just like the Old Testament promised. For example, in Ezekiel 36, verses 24 to 27, God promised to his people, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. Think of water and spirit here as I'm reading. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The reason we need a new heart to enter God's kingdom is that we're all, by nature, unclean people. We are all idolaters to the core with hardened hearts that turn away from God such that we don't walk in his statutes and we don't care about what he says. We hate his rules. His word is not better than silver and gold. It is not as honey upon the lips. We despise it. At least that's the picture Israel, that Ezekiel paints of Israel's idolatry, which is a further parable of our own idolatry. Paul says that we've all exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images re resembling mortal man and animals and beasts and creeping things on the earth. We've all believed the lies over the truth and worshipped and served the creature rather than the, rather than the creator. And as a result... We're all cut off and separated from God. If we, are to, if we are to experience any participation in God's kingdom, we must be transformed into a people that actually love and cherish him from the inside out. 
We need a new nature altogether that comes through the Spirit powerfully working conversion into our hearts. Genuine saving faith comes to Jesus to meet this infinitely great need. Why? Because he's the one that causes the new birth. He on whom you see the Spirit descend, John the Baptist says. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Or John chapter 16, verse 7. Jesus tells his disciples, is it, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the Helper, the Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go away, I will send him to you. By coming and dying and rising again and ascending into heaven to give the Spirit, Jesus causes the new birth. He's the one we come to to receive spiritual transformation. So saving faith doesn't keep Jesus at bay. That's what spurious faith did. Saving faith, spurious faith keeps Jesus at bay, at arm's length. Saving faith, on the other hand, sees the need for a new heart and runs to embrace Jesus as the provider of it. Let me ask, is this, is this why you come to Jesus? Is, is this, do you come to Jesus because you see that you are in need of desperate spiritual transformation? Is this why you believe in Jesus' name? To meet your desperate need for a new heart? Or do you come to Jesus just for more Bible knowledge? Just so that he gets you what you want. Your heart is the causal core of your personhood. And apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ, it will always look for satisfaction in sin and rebellion against God. A heart satisfied with sin is why you speak harshly to your wife. It's why you grow impatient with your children. It's it's what causes your discontentment at work. It's what trades the eternal glory of God for cheap imitations like worldly power, sexual immorality, loads of cash, and self-esteem. It's why you look for escape in drugs or a shopping spree. Jesus came to give you a new heart that no longer rebels against God. And if we don't come to him for this inner change, we don't really come to him at all. At least in the way that saves. Your greatest need is that you must be born again, verse 7 says. Your race, your works, your morality, your Bible knowledge contributes nothing to your salvation. You must have a completely new nature. And only Jesus provides it. Saving faith sees that great need and runs to Jesus as the provider of it. Number two, saving faith comes to Jesus for new eyes. So it comes to Jesus for a new heart. It also comes to Jesus for new eyes. Already Jesus told Nicodemus that unless he's born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus needs new eyes meaning he needs new spiritual sight to see what Jesus sees and value what Jesus values. Nicodemus could see with his physical eyes. That's clear. He saw him perform all the miracles and made out that he's some teacher in Israel. 
But he couldn't see with his spiritual eyes what the miracles were actually meant to reveal. Not merely that Jesus was a teacher, but that Jesus was the only son was the only son from the Father full of grace and truth. These are the eyes that Paul calls the eyes of our hearts in Ephesians 1.18, which God must enlighten if we are to know him through Jesus Christ. The eyes of Nicodemus' heart remain blind, but Jesus tells him where to find new ones. New eyes are found by coming to Jesus. And we actually see, as you will see, Nicodemus pop up again in chapter 7, in John, and then later in chapter 19, where he's taking Jesus with the, the spices and things, so uh, after, the, after his death on the cross. So what we're actually seeing is that Nicodemus is beginning to come to Jesus for these new eyes. But here, he doesn't have them. New eyes are found only by coming to Jesus. Verse 11 says, Jesus answered Nicodemus, Are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. All right? Jesus sees things here. We bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things, that is referring to the new birth, the stuff that he just told him about, if I have told you earthly things... And you do not believe. How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Referring to the kingdom to come. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. You get the picture? Nicodemus thinks that his sight qualifies him to be a teacher of Israel. And Jesus comes into the picture and says, you don't see anything at all. You don't see anything at all, Nicodemus. To receive new vision, to see himself and the world rightly, to see God's kingdom and its powerful presence in Jesus Christ, who's standing before him, Nicodemus must come to Jesus. Jesus is the Son of Man. A title uh, from the vision of Daniel 7.13 where we see the divine Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven and approaching the Ancient of Days in the courtroom of heaven. And it says that to this Son of Man was was given dominion and power and a kingdom and nations and languages that would serve Him in that kingdom forever. If anybody is qualified... To be Israel's teacher, if anybody is qualified to teach us about earthly and heavenly things, to reveal what this world is about, to grant insight into God's will for his kingdom and the purposes for our life in it, it is Jesus, the Son of Man. He was in the bosom of the Father for all eternity. He beheld the Ancient of Days' face. For all eternity, he was in the beginning with God and all things came into being through him. No one has ascended into heaven, meaning no one has ascended into heaven so as to speak the heavenly things that Jesus is able and qualified to speak. Except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. He is able to speak these things because he's witnessed them himself glory to glory with his Father. The question is, do we come to listen to what he says about heaven, or do we ignore him? 
Jesus bears witness to what he has seen, to what he's beheld of God himself for all eternity. He knows what God's creation was designed to value most, namely the glory of God shining in all its brightness in the person of Jesus, his son. The glory of God in Christ is what you were made and redeemed to behold. Jesus even prays this for you in chapter 17, verse 24, when he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. The reason we need new eyes is that the eyes we have now don't run to the glory of God in Jesus Christ. The eyes we have now too often settle for worthless things. That means we don't, va- we don't really value what is supremely valuable, namely God. Instead, we trade God for something that we, out of our sheer arrogance, create with money or a raised voice or a digital image or extra comfort. I had a lady... I had a lady tell me this week that Jesus was so awesome, and she was really talking this up. And I asked her why Jesus was so awesome to her. And she said, because he made every traffic light green so that I could make it to the affairs at the church the other day. Let's just say that's not 2020 vision according to Jesus. And much of what we value differs very little. That's why we need our eyes changed. God upholds and ordains the flicker of every green traffic light on the face of this planet, regardless of Jesus coming into the world. But God sent his son into the world not to give us green traffic lights and more convenience but to deliver us from hell. To give us new hearts and to open our eyes to what is supremely valuable. God himself. Where we find all of our satisfaction. If we believe in Jesus at all, then we must come to him for new spiritual eyes that we might begin seeing what the Son of Man sees. Getting excited about what the Son of Man is excited about, namely the glory of his Father. And valuing what the Son of Man values. This is how saving, this is what saving faith does. It comes to Jesus for those new eyes. Number three, saving faith comes to Jesus for new life. It's a new heart, new eyes, and now it comes to Jesus for new life. We see this in verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. For what purpose? That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. That's the new life we must seek in coming to Jesus. Eternal life. When Jesus speaks of being lifted up, he's speaking of his death on the cross... And it's his lifting up to death, which he compares to Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness. We've seen Jesus do this before, time and again. 
He takes an Old Testament person or place or institution. He shows how these patterns anticipated his coming. And then he explains how he is the fulfillment and replacement and far superior one. And to this point, Jesus has done this with the tabernacle. He's done it with the Passover lamb. He's done it with God's anointed priests and king. He's done it with King David himself. He's done it with the temple. And now he's about to do it again with the serpent in the wilderness. So you may remember the story from Numbers 21. Israel becomes impatient with God and complains to Moses. And as a consequence for their murmuring and rebellion against God, the Lord cursed the people by sending poisonous serpents to bite them so that the people died. And their only hope came when the Lord mercifully makes provision for them through a bronze serpent lifted up on a pole. Moses was to take that serpent, hold it before the people, and whoever looked to the serpent would not die but but live even though they were bitten. Jesus is saying that just as God made provision for the people's deliverance from death in the wilderness, so also God has made provision for our deliverance from death in the Son of Man. But the deliverance here is of infinitely greater value. Whereas the serpent was lifted up on a pole to rescue God's people from the temporary curse of the serpent's, The Son of Man came to be lifted up on a cross, a tree, to rescue God's people from the eternal curse of the law. Whereas the serpent was merely a replica of God's curse on the people, the Son of Man was no mere replica of God's curse, but one who actually became God's curse for the people. You know that from 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Whereas the serpent was made of bronze and spilt no blood to remove the sting of death, which is sin, the Son of Man took on flesh that his blood might remove it completely for all who believe. See that in 1 Corinthians 15, 56. Whereas the serpent delivered people from the temporary plague of death when they looked upon it, the Son of Man came to deliver us from the eternal plague of death under God's wrath when we look upon Him. Know that from John 3.16. Whereas the people under the serpent benefited from longer physical life, those under the Son of Man received the benefit of eternal life. A life not only of eternal duration, but also of greater spiritual vitality. Jesus came that we might have life, it says in John 10.10, and have that life abundantly. Whereas the serpent was eventually shattered to pieces and destroyed under King Hezekiah's reforms, 2 Kings 18, Jesus' body never saw corruption because God raised him from the dead to live victorious over sin and death for all who continue looking to him. This is the new life for which Jesus, for, for which we must come to Jesus. In being lifted up on the cross, he takes away our curse for having wandering hearts. 
He becomes our substitute for the, for, for the death our rebellion deserves, eternal death under God's wrath. He bleeds to forgive us when our spiritual eyes wander from things less satisfying than God himself. He removes the wrath we deserve for not valuing God and his glory. He wins for us eternal life with God despite our adulterous affair with the world. And he forever lives to impart new life by the Spirit to all who believe in him with saving faith. That's what Jesus does. That's why we come to him. So what ultimately makes for saving faith? Saving faith sees its real need for a new heart and new eyes and a new life and throws itself upon Jesus to provide all of it. What kind of faith is in you? Spurious? Or saving? That question is not meant for you to take home and spend the rest of your days paranoid about which faith you have. No spurious faith. Or saving faith every day, looking in, looking at your faith. It's meant to help you fly to Jesus no matter what kind of faith you have. You have spurious faith? Fly to Jesus. He came to die for it and give you real faith. You have saving faith? Keep coming to Jesus. That's why He died. For you and rose again that you might have fellowship with him and the Father in all of his glory and splendor. If it's spurious and fake, don't leave afraid of what others may think of you. Jesus already knows what is in you. That's what it says. He knows what is in man. He knows what kind of faith is in you. And if it's spurious, his blood is enough to cover your unbelief. So come to Jesus now. Today is the day of salvation, and he will have you. He will entrust himself to you when you cast yourself upon him, saying, Change me. Change me. Give me a new heart, Lord Jesus. He will save you when you bow at his feet, saying, These eyes have been far too easily pleased with the things of this world. Give me new ones that I may see what is truly valuable and truly worth my life. Jesus will have you this morning when you come to him as the one who meets your greatest need. The need for eternal life. So what I'm saying is that no one will be able to say on the last day, well, I tried coming to him, but he just wouldn't entrust himself to me. No one will be able to say that on the last day. While Jesus is not obligated to entrust himself to anyone on earth, he has, out of his love for his Father and out of his love for you, he has obligated himself to save everyone who comes to him on the ground of saving faith. A faith that says, like his disciples say in chapter 6, to whom else are we going to go? To where else are we going to turn? You have the words of eternal life and we have come to believe that you are the Holy One of God. He doesn't turn anyone away who comes like that. God's love in saving you may never be obligatory, constrained by human demands, but it's always passionate 
and infinitely powerful to save everyone who comes on the ground of saving faith. And how do we know that? Because he sent his son into the world to live, die, and rise again to secure for you a new heart that you might be able to believe in him and new eyes that that might be opened to his kingdom and new life that experiences freedom from sin and death. And that tells me that God wants to save you more than you want to be saved. So don't hesitate in saying, Jesus, have me, save me, entrust yourself to me, and he will mercifully do so because such a response glorifies and pleases his heavenly Father. That's where we're going next time when we pick up in John 3.16. Five weeks from now, after an Easter series, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. For what purpose? That whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. That's what pleases his father. And if you're a believer in Jesus' name, in the truest sense of what that means, again, I'm going to stress this again, that the application is no different. You too must keep coming to Jesus. There's a day that's yet to come in which our new hearts and our new eyes and our new life will be united to our new bodies in a new kingdom under a new rule. And we will experience ever-increasing joy in God's presence. But until then, we look to the Son of Man to give us life. We look to the Son of Man to teach us heavenly things. We look to the Son of Man to help us walk according to the Spirit. And even now, through the Lord's Supper, we have opportunity to remember and proclaim once again together what made our new life possible to begin with the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for the new birth. I thank you for eyes, for enlightening the eyes of our hearts. And I thank you for providing us eternal life through the death and resurrection of your Son, I pray that in coming days we might lay hold of him for who he truly is, bringer of the new birth, giver of the new eyes, and giver of eternal life. And keep our hands clinging to him and our hearts embracing him and our minds filled with him that our treasuring of him may only continue to grow until the day he returns. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.